beauty is only truly skin deep. And if you don't have another strong characteristic behind that, then it's like an empty paper bag blowing in the wind. And that is one of the things that I have noticed in my lifetime where there are a lot of women who've really concentrated on being beautiful and no one can take that away from them. Visually, they are appealing by whatever standards you want to measure them by, but there's no depth, there's no substance, and usually there is no empathy there either. You're listening to the Sub-Saharan Beauty Podcast, a platform dedicated to illuminating the African beauty industry and shining a unique lens on the diverse perspectives and conversations that uphold the diaspora. And I'm your host, Ijama Chimezie, pharmacist and beauty entrepreneur. Let's get started. My guest on today's episode is Karen Henriksen, philanthropist and CEO of Ribito Clinic, the premier dermatology health facilities in Ghana. Karen is also a recent nominee for the Top 100 Women CEOs in Africa Award. She leads a team focused on making a positive impact in Ghana's healthcare space, specializing in dermatology by building on the 45-year legacy created by founder and chief medical director, Professor Edmund Dele. So a fun tidbit about Karen is in addition to all of the amazing work she's doing with leading the efforts to advance dermatologic care in Ghana, she also makes time to explore her passion for gardening and nature and has co-authored a book called Ghana's Beautiful Gardens as a passion project. And I'm really excited for you guys to hear a bit more about our conversation. So I'm really excited to chat with you. So let's get into it. I would love to know what took you, Jamaican-born, Bermuda-raised, to Ghana? That's a wonderful question. I would say my lust for adventure is what brought me to the continent. In my life before I came to Ghana, I was a senior executive in HSBC, formerly the Bank of Bermuda, where I managed a portfolio for high net worth clients in the millions of dollars. And my entire life was spent making the rich richer. That was my job. And while it was rewarding and paid very well, after about 10 years, it started to feel hollow. And I felt that I needed to do something that was more fulfilling and satisfied my adventure vein inside me. And just traveling and visiting places wasn't enough. I wanted to be on the continent. So that started my quest and my planning to start looking at which African country I would like to live in. So Ghana wasn't immediately the first choice. It was initially my husband and I decided we're moving to Africa. Now we have to agree on where. And through a process of elimination and trips over about two or three years, we decided that Ghana should be our new home. I absolutely love that. And I want you to speak to that a little bit more. You've been in Ghana now for over 20 years, right? Oh, this month, October, uh, will be 19 years. Wow. So that's incredible. And I think that there's this newfound passion and interest for a lot of people who are really trying to reconnect. And I know we spoke about that with Ghana and the recent return back home that happened. And I think it's so incredible to hear that. And really for the purpose of also what we're talking about, just we talk about beauty, but beauty is not just like physical. And the whole idea is to speak about the beauty and the richness of us as Black people, but specifically on the continent. So I would love to kind of hear what was that cultural immersion for you and like, how were you received? Let me just give you a little bit as to why Ghana resonated with me Mm. the moment I stepped on its shores. In my formative early years, I lived in Jamaica. And I actually went as far as primary school in Jamaica. So things like the foods, the countryside, our family traveled a lot 
throughout Jamaica. So there was that familiarity that I had as a child. And when I stepped on the shores of Ghana, I felt, and I still feel like Jamaica was once part of Ghana, mm-hmm. both in geographic landmass and people, and that somehow it broke off and floated to the Caribbean. So I didn't feel like I was coming to a new country. I actually felt like I was returning home in the mm-hmm. truest sense. And people sometimes ask me, like, what do you mean by that, Karen? The foods were all familiar. Some of the names of the foods, like rundown and boiled bananas, those were things I grew up in Jamaica on. And ackee and all sorts of things. They were here and abundantly here. Jackfruit, mangoes. And so the assimilation for me was almost zero when it came to like the foods and the environment. People say, oh, I don't like the heat. I thrive in the heat. In fact, if it gets too cold, I'm miserable. So it was very, very easy for me on that stance. And then with the people, Ghanaian people are very warm and friendly. And they're very proud of that. But what resonated with me even more than the warmth and the welcoming nature was the fact that they looked like people I knew. Almost every day I see someone that I feel like I've met this person before. Because as you know, we are all descendants from Africa, but many of us descended from West Africa. So for me, that just really resonated. And I know in the earlier years, my grandmother, who was very close to me before she passed, In my earlier years in Ghana, especially when I visited certain coastal towns, I felt like I saw her because people looked like her. And that sense of being like, hey, I'm just returning from where my ancestors left, that resonated with me so much that the assimilation was very, very easy. And I still am enjoying and embracing that portion of being here. That is so beautiful. I think the beauty of just hearing that narrative from you and really feeling at home in Africa without feeling like you needed to be physically born there is so powerful. I think it is. And one of the things that before the year of return, many, many of my friends who I tried to get them to come and visit. They didn't want to come because fear of the unknown or fear of the mental brainwashing that they had had for many years. And I used to say to them, but you love going to Jamaica. You enjoy the Caribbean. And trust me, being where I am in Ghana is just an extension, but a larger extension of that. But all that fell on deaf ears until they came through the year of return. And then it was like, oh, my God, why didn't I come years ago? Blah, 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 blah. But the reality is Ghana and I would say the continent is a beautiful, diverse place. And many of the images that go out there, and that's how I got into gardening, by the way, and doing the book. Many of the images that go out there are designed to make everybody feel that the continent should be written off. But I can assure you that this continent, and I haven't visited every single country yet, but I've gone to at least half, and it is a vibrant, throbbing, beautiful country. And none of the countries are just cities. They all have countryside. They all have beautiful either artifacts or sculptures or landscapes that 99% of the literature out there will not show. And that is why Africa's Beautiful Gardens is also, if you will, like my quasi-political statement. As I travel through the continent, as I visit people's homes, and they allow me to take pictures to tell our story, because nobody else is going to do it for us. I guess this podcast is also my political statement then. (laughs) Yes, and that's why I was immediately willing to 
help and be a part of this because we have to tell our own story. Right. You know, the Intrepid Tracker, or all those other books I used to buy that talks about different countries. They cannot do it from the perspective that a person of African descent right. who has been on the continent can do. They just can't. You are 100% accurate on that. And I will just share this quick one. Before we continue, because I, during my last visit back home, we went to the village, my paternal home. And during that time, I was actually training for the New York City Marathon because I was running it in November. And I remember this was in August. Yes, this was August. So one of my younger cousins, I somehow convinced him to go running with us in the village. Now, everybody thought we were crazy to go running in the village, but my huge thing whenever I travel is I run everywhere I go. Like it is my way of experiencing the area. And we took a long run. We took a 10 mile run. And the, to your point, the countryside, that road, the road that we took was absolutely incredible. And because we went early in the morning, we saw people going to work. It was just so dynamic. People were cheering us on. Some people thought we were crazy running, like translating in Igbo, who's chasing you? Where are you running to? And I just was like, man, that experience in of its own was so rich. And by the way, we drove that road often, but it didn't feel the same. Running it, you felt it a little bit differently. And to your point, There's so much beauty, and I think that those isolated and limiting narratives truly take away from the beauty of who we are. I think that's kind of why I want to, like, transition. When I think about beauty, I truly think of it to be cultural, right? Like, there's external, but then there's everything that truly defines beauty, and that's what I want to talk about. And part of the work you do with Rubito Clinic Let's get into that a little bit, like the dermatology practice and what you all are seeing there, because there are the true challenges of skin bleaching and some areas. But I want to talk about a little bit of that and also like the advances, the advances in terms of healthcare, because I think that aspect, too, as it pertains to skin health and everything like that, which is if you're in the States, you can't talk about beauty these days without talking about skincare. And I want to make sure, and I think that's actually anywhere, really. But I want to bring that forth because I think when Africa is brought into the dialogue in terms of our beauty industry, there are some great convos, but then there are some not great convos, right? So I would love to hear your perspective on that. Okay. For your audience, let me just give them a thumbnail sketch of what Rabito is about. Right now, we're 47 years old. And our founder and chief medical officer, Professor Dele, is still alive and still consulting. We have 18 clinics spread across the country. And I know to the North American or European, when they hear dermatology, they immediately think of the cosmetic aspect of it, the Botox, the plastic surgery. However, what Rabito has specialized in is taking care of clinical skin conditions. That's our specialty. So let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Let's say you might wake up one morning and you've just got a rash. You're scratching, scratching, scratching. You don't know what it is. You might run to the pharmacy and get something to put on it, but it still doesn't go away. Those are the types of conditions that we treat. It could be scabies, eczema, even leprosy, all types of clinical conditions. So it's not necessarily beauty in like, I just want to look better, but it's beauty in the sense that you want your skin to either stop irritating you or stop being an embarrassment to you, but there are medical conditions. And so insurance companies pay for this type of treatment, whereas they won't pay for like Botox or uh, Tommy Talk or something like that. Now, acne is our number one condition for our 40 something plus years. You have men and women coming in with all types of acne and Professor Dele and his team of medical doctors, they have not only mastered the treatment of it, even some of the most gruesome and 
horrendous to my non-medical eyes, they have been able to successfully treat the acne. And my niece is one of them. And when she was 14, she broke out into a horrendous acne and she was coming to visit me in Ghana. And at the time I wasn't working at Rabito. And I asked around of everybody, can you give me some names as to who I can take my niece to when she gets here? Every single person said Rabito. So that was my first entree. But yes, so that is the type of dermatology that we specialize in. But it does affect one's beauty because even if the condition is where you can't see it, let's say it's on your thigh and you're wearing dresses or pants all the time, but if it is a worry to you, it affects your psyche and your internal perception of your beauty. And that is such a powerful, uh, either negative or positive, that if it's not treated, it can really damage a person's psyche. And that's why Professor Deli always says, the skin is the largest organ of our bodies. And it is also the precursor of conditions that may be yet to come. So it's like an early weather warning. It tells you what's happening inside. And that's why dermatologists work very close with other specialists because you might think, for instance, oh, this rash just showed up overnight, but it could be telling you about something that is more serious that's happening inside. So they treat, they test, they consult. So that's the beauty part of it. But I want to tell you a quick story of a young man who visited our clinic shortly after I started. When I saw his face, well, he had it covered with a hood because he was extremely self-conscious of it. But when he did look up, I saw what looked like marbles all over his face. And of course, I greeted him just like he was any patient, because we have to make our patients feel like this is a safe space. But it was the first time I had ever seen anything like that. And after he left the clinic, I popped in to see Professor Deli because that was who he was going to see. And I said, Prof, will you be able to do something for that patient? And he said, oh, of course, that's nothing. Wow. I was skeptical, okay? And fast forward six months, that same man comes up to me and says, hi, Karen, because in the time of coming, I've seen him, he's called me and so forth. And I greeted him warmly and I said, oh, I don't think we've had an opportunity to meet. My name is such and such. And he said, Karen, it's me. I'm da 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 da. And I could not believe it. His face was better than mine. And people tell me I have good skin. I could not believe my eyes. So he went in for his review. And so after he left, uh, and when Prof was free again, I popped in again and said, I cannot believe what I saw. And he was like, Karen, that's nothing. I've treated far worse. So I said to him, so are you saying that Acne is treatable. He said, absolutely. But it's different cures for different types of acne. And that gentleman happened to have one of the worst, but not the worst. His feeling now, he's taking pictures. He said he never took pictures before. He feels empowered. We think beauty is a frivolous thing. But it is a perception that if you feel beautiful, then you will act and react to everything the way you feel. But if you don't, then it is very difficult to see past that reality. Now, that's like a double-edged sword because I'm sure we all know women who are men who we think are so gorgeous and they have no self-esteem, they don't think they're beautiful, and they can't see what we can truly see. And then you have people who... They're not beautiful inside or out. They just don't have it, but they think they are. And you try to let them know that you've got to correct your behavior or the way you do things because it's not beautiful. But they think, look, girl, I've got it going on. So that's why I say it's a double-edged sword. 
But more often than not, people, particularly women, who are truly beautiful, both externally and internally, the media has convinced them that they're lacking, that they're wanting, and they will not measure up unless they buy A, B, C, D, or they use F, Y, G. It's a never-ending cycle. And this is why I truly believe that from very young ages, especially female children, they should be taught that their beauty comes from within Mm. and not from outside. So one of the things I used to do, for instance, when my niece was a little girl and she was very beautiful by traditional standards, beautiful skin, but she had green eyes. Well, she still has them. They haven't gone anywhere. (laughs) And so people used to be marveled, like this black child, but she's also fairly light skin, which is another thing that people tend to automatically give a tick. They used to say, oh, she's so beautiful. She's so beautiful. Do you know what I trained my niece to say? I trained her to say as young as three, thank you, but I'm intelligent too. So that she would understand that that was not the epitome of who she will become. Because beauty is only truly skin deep. And if you don't have another strong characteristic behind that, then it's like an empty paper bag blowing in the wind. And that is one of the things that I have noticed in my lifetime where there are a lot of women who've really concentrated on being beautiful. And no one can take that away from them. Visually, they are appealing by whatever standards you want to measure them by. But there's no depth, there's no substance, and usually there is no empathy there either. Mm. So it's just very shallow. While Rabito does its part, because we understand that if you don't feel or if you are plagued by a medical condition that affects you psychologically, Mm -hmm. that it is detrimental to you in the long run. But at the same time, we try to let people know that through our philanthropic work as a clinic, by our free outreaches and things we do for the community, that we are not just focused on the physical, but there's more to life than that. And for that, we're very proud of being that type of organization. You covered so much. And I just kind of want to unpack a little bit of that because you talked about the psychosocial component of some of these medical conditions and how some of the patients that you guys are seeing at Robito, that's a big concern for them. Like their skin manifestations or their skin concerns really affect them from a psychosocial perspective. And then you shared that incredible story, which I'm not surprised if you have 46 years of experience um, black skin, that's the other black thing. Skin. Black yes. skin, I should have mentioned that at the top. We are sure that Rabito Clinic is the foremost authority on black skin in the world because of the length of time we've been in service and the number of patients we have served in that time. And for instance, we know that there are certain drugs that will work exceptionally well on white skin. Yeah, But it will not work the same way on black skin. And we do get white patients. Don't get me wrong. We get Asian, etc. But the majority is black skin. So we know that from the data, what works on what skin. And that's why so many pharmaceutical companies come to us first. So many that come and ask us, can you try this? Can you test this? Give us your feedback. Because they know that if it works for our patients, it will work for other patients. Right. So, yes. So that is the treasure trove that Rabito has. You mentioned something early on that I want to kind of tease out a little bit in terms of the role of media, I guess, in defining what beauty looks like everywhere, really, but specifically in Africa, but specifically in Ghana. I know when we first spoke, you shared something that really stood out to me about the billboards. Yes. If you drive around Ghana, 
any billboard, I would say 99.9 tenths of them will show a very light-skinned or a mixed-race person who is smiling or doing whatever. And it gives the impression that that's the majority of the population. And so people who are darker skin are not represented on our billboards, which is a very effective medium of communicating to people. Even on the television shows, you will see that. And I find that extremely disturbing because I didn't leave the West to come to a country in Africa that continues to push the message that if you're light, you're all right. If you're black, stay back. I didn't come to Africa for that. Mm. So I am very sensitive to that. And if you recall, I also shared the story with you about how I, as a lighter-skinned person, was actually approached to be the face of a very well-known international product, whose name I won't mention here. But I've always disliked that product because it sent the subliminal message that Mm. if you weren't white or almost white, uh, you could use their product to become like that. And... No one could understand why I outright refused it. But I know the impact that those billboards have on young people, especially young girls. And in Ghana, where a huge percentage, they say at least 70% of the female population is actively bleaching their skin to Mm. become whiter, to attain the unobtainable in those billboards and in those movies. In fact, if you watch a lot of the African movies, you would think that everybody is either light-skinned or they have long-flowing Caucasian hair. Listen. Okay, <laughs> don't get me started about that one. Okay. We're not going to talk about hair today. <laughs> so, and that is what is permeating into our community. Mm-hmm. And so much so that even when you go to remote towns and villages, you are seeing the effects of that. To be honest, it's extremely distressing to not just me, but to Rabito, because we see the end product of the bleaching. Mm-hmm. When a person starts to get skin cancer or they realize, oh my gosh, whatever I'm using for bleaching is having lots of other effects on my internal organs. Then they run to us and it's like, can you help? And few will usually admit that they've been bleaching. They'll say, oh, I was just using a toning cream or yeah, oh no, oh, I'm not doing that. I use, so, okay, well, you bring everything that you've been using and sure enough in there is bleaching. Sometimes people don't even know. And I'll give you an example to show you how deadly this can be. Mm. I have a friend He has identical twins, same age. They were the same color. When they hit about 13, 14, we noticed that one was getting lighter than the other. So my friend asked him, what is going on? Why are you getting lighter? And he says, I don't know. And then so the father probed more. He said, what are you using on your skin? And he says, oh, I like the smell of my mother's. So I'm using hers whereas the brother was using another lotion. The mother's lotion, whose name, if I said the name, you would know it. It had a toning in it, and it was literally bleaching her son's skin, unbeknownst to the son or even to the mom. The mom didn't even know the son was borrowing her lotion. So do you see how these things are? And We did a study at Rabito about a year and a half ago. We looked at the top 10 selling creams and lotions in the country. Of that top 10, only one was not a bleaching agent. Wow. Only one. And these were local and international brands. That's why one has to be so careful when you pick up a product that you're going to put on your skin to see what are you actually picking up. Because nowadays it will not say we are going to bleach your skin and change the color. It will not say that. It's so interesting you say that because I remember during this one trip I took home, 
actually in November 2018, and I attended the Beauty West Africa conference. It was actually a great conference. There was great education around the importance of proper aesthetic care, like doing it the right way, because there's a lot of shops that are opening up that are like quack shops, giving all this stuff. But the one thing that really stood out to me was when I walked the conference floor and I looked at to see what brands were there, what skincare products were there. And majority were international. And just looking at the advertising, everything was about lighter skin. Everything was about lighter skin. And when you're surrounded by this constant messaging, because marketing, it's a work, it's a behavior change. There are practices that are incorporate into change your behavior and to make you think that that's what you need to be aspiring to. And it was quite disappointing. So to hear what you're saying in terms of like the top, you did a research and top 10 were bleaching. I can't even say that I'm surprised. It's just always disappointing to hear because if that's the only thing that people are having, like, Mm. and it's not that it's the only thing because I'm sure there are other, but if it's so readily available to the masses, despite your socioeconomic status, it makes that issue. But then the other part you mentioned that's really interesting that I still haven't really understood is this notion of there is a stigma to skin bleaching, right? People kind of know it's not good, but they do it, but they hide to do it. And I would love to kind of hear, because that kind of goes into the psychological. Yes, yes. What it is, they want to make the perception to be that that's how they were born. So it's like, oh no. In fact, uh, another funny story. I have a friend that when I came to Ghana, she was several shades darker than me, had the pictures to prove it. And she's now several shades lighter than me. And one day I actually asked, what is going on? Because your color is changing. And she said to me in front of a group of friends, She's doing nothing. It's just that she's getting older and her skin is getting lighter. Now, physiologically, that is not possible. And it's not like it's happening in patches. It was very even, right? But yes, so that is kind of the thing. Like they want to make it look like that's how I was born. And that's why even now there is cases where women are taking a certain type of medication while they're pregnant so that their children will be born lighter. And then they can say, oh, this is just how the child was born. And then they will continue the treatment even as the child is a baby. But it is known that these children are being born with serious birth defects, physical birth defects. And the government, Ghanaian government, is warning people to desist from that. But again, we don't know if the message is being heard. But I like to look at... Those who don't have access to the products, not just the international products, because for every international product, there is a local product that can do the same thing. But even so, imagine the little girl in that village who is seeing all these lighter skin image, who has beautiful black ebony skin, Mm -hmm. and she is being bombarded by the message that she is not good enough. That's so true. That is the person that I worry about, okay? And it has happened to me many, many occasions where, because my work takes me outside of Accra, because like I said, we have 18 branches spread across the country. And it is not unusual for a little girl to come up to me and be like very enthralled because of my skin complexion. And they might say, oh, you're so beautiful, like with that longing or that wanting. Not because I'm beautiful, but the complexion that I have naturally because somewhere in my forefathers were raped, my foremothers were raped, they are now being led to believe that that is the epitome of what beauty is. And then I will say to that child, but you are far more beautiful than me because look at your beautiful skin. But they always look at me either in astonishment, like no one's ever told me that, or you're just trying to be nice. Because even at that young age, five, six, seven, eight, they have already picked up the message that they're just not beautiful enough because they have 
what God has given them, natural, dark, beautiful, blemishless skin. So this is why I am passionate about never representing any product. I don't care how much you pay me of a product that is going to strip away the psychology of any African male or female. Yeah, that's really tough to hear because when you think about a young child thinking of that so early on and how that will affect her throughout her growth, I kind of feel some type of way hearing that too, right? Like it really makes you to sit back and really reflect on the power of representation too in a positive way and also in the opposite way because if you're only, to your point, showcasing imagery that's not representative of what that individual sees when they look in the mirror every day, you start to plant the seed of doubt that's going to continue to be watered by just moving around. (laughs) Absolutely. And you know what? It has a ripple effect because it's not just women. So then the boys grow up thinking that the status symbol is having a woman on his arm that has a certain complexion, has certain flowing hair, Mm. etc. So it perpetuates itself. I'm telling you, this effect on one's psyche, the perception of what's beautiful and what is not, is driven by billions of dollars of marketing. Yes. And anything that we can collectively do to try and prevent our young people from feeling less than, while it's a drop in the bucket, it's still very important. It's still very, very important. I have had so many conversations with women who I've gotten to know, and I'll ask, why are you wearing that hot wig in this environment where flowing down your back, you are not a white, even the white women are cutting their hair. Why are you doing it? And why are you doing things to your skin? I will ask those questions and they will say, oh, this is what the guys like. If not, the guys won't date us. Okay. Then when I talk to the guys, the guys will say, oh, no, no, it's not that way at all. But then I say, okay, show me pictures of your last three or four girlfriends. And guess what? They all (laughs) And they'll say, oh, no, it wasn't conscious. It was just that that's who I was attracted to. (laughs) No, we are, I'm not going to say we because I'm not part of that huge marketing platform that tells Africans that they're not good enough, that they're not light enough. So that is how the message, that's why the message of beauty is so powerful and it should be defined as being various types and shapes and styles of beauty. And then we have to walk the walk and live that and not just say one thing and then we're out there shopping for the latest and greatest cream that will make people lighter and the latest wig. What are some solutions? How do you hold brands responsible who are on the continent and doing that level of marketing? I'm calling it colorism marketing, to be honest whether they're intending to or not, when you're only representing certain features or certain, your your product, yeah, consciously or not, you're still sending a message. What are your thoughts in terms of solutions for moving the needle on this topic? And also like, whether it's holding brands responsible, or is there something from a government perspective in African countries. Like, I would love to hear your thoughts on that, especially with you guys at Rubito leading the conversation around dermatology Mm. and everything you talked about today. What are some of your thoughts? I don't think any single individual can fight the tide of what we see in the advertising space. But I do think programs like yours that actually address it head-on can have a very significant impact. You will inspire people to start thinking differently. Also, companies like Rabito, who really feel that this is an important topic, in our social media space, if you visit rabitoclinic.com or Instagram or Facebook pages, we are 
always having this dialogue about the effects of skin bleaching and loving the skin that you're in. And also our young people. One of the things that I am happy to see happening is that our young people are, I would like to say they're fed up, not all, but many of them are fed up with what has been fed to them over the years. And it's starting to manifest itself in like the number of people who no longer perm their hair. They're natural. Oh, yes. In Ghana. I love it. It's a whole movement. There are some businesses that only handle natural hair. People have developed products. So it's like a ripple effect. It's starting. And then on top of that, the young people are sharing their ideas and versions of beauty and explaining how they see themselves. Yeah. And it's very refreshing. Exactly. It's very refreshing. But I think more programs like yourself and organizations who see the sad end of this, whether it be the psychologists, the dermatologists, the plastic surgeons, whatever, the more they start to speak out and let people know that the narrative that you have been fed for the last 60 to 100 plus years doesn't have to be the narrative for the next 60 plus 100 years. Because only when we start to vote with our feet and move away from products that are not enhancing us either as a community or on any level, will they sit up and start to address our needs. For example, I know that when the hair care movement started to move from permed hair to natural hair about, I guess, 15, 20 years ago, there wasn't much on the market to deal with natural hair. Because as far as the big producers were concerned, the little group that was requesting it didn't matter. Now that movement has gotten so big with the help of social media and programs like your own, you walk into the most European of pharmacies or hair shops and they have a whole section on natural skincare products and natural hair products because the movement has been picking up steam and the smart organizations have realized if we don't adapt, we will be left behind. So that I think is the answer. We have to be purposeful and deliberate in how we mobilize the contents of our wallets and what we speak about and what we share so that people will start to see the African continent, not as a dumping ground or an extension of Europe and North America and South America, but more as a unique marketplace where they have to adapt. When you're in Asia, the billboards have Asians on it, okay? Mind you, they do bleach them on the billboards, yes. But you will not see a Caucasian on a billboard, generally speaking, in places like Thailand, Hong Kong, Japan, and places like that. And that's because they have learned they have to value those markets. If not, they won't have business there. So that's what the continent has to do. I love what you just said. They have to value that market. And I think, woo, that is a whole vibe. <laughs> that is a whole message. Today is Sunday, and that is a sermon. <laughs> No, because it's so true. And I think when something is not valued, you don't feel like you need to listen to what the people there want Uh as opposed to what you want to push. As I'm thinking about this platform too, is like, how do we move that conversation? Because globalization is not going to stop, but how is it that our needs are respected, right? And Mm -hmm. at the forefront versus just kind of being seen as a viable market to make money, but it's like, where's the connection? Where's the value component of the people you're reaching out to? That right there is incredible. So I guess, I mean, we've had such a great conversation so far, and I think we could probably keep going, but I would love to kind of ask you, what would be some of your final words 
to share. If you had to speak to, I think you kind of did a little bit in terms of people, women, whoever that's listening, what would you have to say? And that's kind of across the board, even including someone at your L'Oreal or something that you mentioned, because I think it's important to hear your perspective. Really, as someone who's leading an organization that's shifting healthcare at a larger perspective in Ghana, but specifically talking to dermatology, what would you want to tell us? What do you want to leave us with? That's probably the most difficult question you've asked me because (laughs) there's so much running around in my brain. But what I think I would like to say to your audience is especially the younger ones in the audience, that beauty comes from within and everything else can only enhance it or detract from it, but it cannot make you beautiful. You have to have that inner beauty within. And then once you have that, any skin conditions or challenges that you face, you should research and look to an authority or a source in your community who can assist you to overcome that, that issue that you might be facing, let's mm. say if it's acne. There are many, many people out there who don't have any skin conditions, and yet they don't feel as if they're beautiful. And it's to those people I'd like to speak to and let them understand that There is no potion, ointment, oil, nothing that can make them feel beautiful. It has to come within. And they have to now start looking inward, understanding why that sense of I'm not good enough or beautiful enough, where does it come from? And strip away the layers and find that sense that you're all born with of confidence that's there from a baby. But over years, things are piled on and piled on to make that disappear, but it's still there. So I would like for them to do that. And I would be very grateful, Ijoma, if you would be kind enough to share my Karen Hendrickson Facebook page or the Visual Orator on Instagram is also my page. I can connect people who are having these internal struggles Mm. with people who have gone through that. I belong to various communities of individuals where positivity and confidence is what we feed on every day so that over time we start to see ourselves as the Nubian queens that we are Mm. and not as what some billboard or magazine is trying to tell us. I love that. As you were speaking, I'm like, I don't know if I want to ask her this next question because I know she's about to close it with an amazing piece. But I would love to ask you, for Rubito, what is your aspired vision? Like the next 10 years or the next 15 years, what is aspired vision? Rabito's vision for the next five to 10 years is to be in all the countries in Africa have a representation there because we have patients that come from all over the continent to us. We know that the conditions that people are experiencing here, they also have in other countries. So that's one thing. The second thing is that Rabito wants to set up the first and only University of Dermatology on the continent. Wow. Where we are growing our own dermatologists. And that is a 10 to 15 year plan. And we'll be starting very soon to also offer aesthetic services, which are the non-medical, non-invasive dermatology services. But we would like to be able to offer that in other countries as well, together with our general medicine offering. Because We know that the skin doesn't operate separate from the rest of the body. But our long-term vision is to be a dominant force in healthcare with emphasis on dermatology so that 
the child in the Zimbabwean village, when you say Rabito, they can tell you, oh, my mother took me there when I had a nappy rash or whatever, whatever, so that the stories just won't be just in Ghana. But those are some of the stories that I hear when I will go places and I will have on my Rabito uniform. And people will say, Rabito, oh my goodness, I remember when I was six years old and my mother took me there, and you hear that all the time. But we want to be like that on the continent, an African-grown clinic that provides services to the continent. And the only way we can really do that is to have our own university Mm -hmm. where medical doctors looking to specialize in dermatology will now come to the university and learn the specialty in tropical dermatology medicine. And that's our big plan. And that is when we really start to have impact. Because if you can grow your own medical team or develop them to now be in their home countries, then the impact goes generations beyond anything any of us living today can do. And at the core of it is always still education, right? Absolutely. At the core of it is always education. That's so awesome. In fact, I have recognized, and this is why I'm so driven, my purpose in life is to make a little ripple effect. So everything I've done, I've never really done it to get like any big bells or whistles, which is why that nomination was such a shock to me. But there are two things that I've realized have huge impact. One is education and one is healthcare. And then when you put the two together, the legacy is timeless. I love that. I think I'm going to close on there because we could probably be chatting for a bit longer. And it is such a pleasure to have you on. I look forward to obviously having you come back any updates, but just in general, thank you so much for all of your words of wisdom and also all of the narratives and for also just educating us in terms of the incredible advancements that you guys have over at Rabito Clinic. I think that similar to the narratives that's always painted of Africa is that there isn't things that are moving ahead, but like y'all are like, it sounds the same as here, right? Like, which is so incredible to me. And I remember watching a webinar that you guys hosted on Acne. And I was so impressed. There were like 400 people on that webinar. I was like, what? For me, I'm aware of how forward moving Africa is to you. But at the same time, I don't think I realize sometimes you need those real other additional experiences and people who are actually doing it like moving the needle to remind you. So I really appreciate it. And thank you so much for your time. Hope you enjoy the rest of your Sunday. I think there, what is it? Almost 3.30 there in Ghana? Uh, Yes, yes. 3.20. Okay. All righty. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for joining me on this episode of the Sub-Saharan Beauty Podcast. If you enjoy the conversation, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Join me on our next episode where we continue the honest beauty and cultural conversations and connect with leading founders and industry experts shifting the beauty, health, and wellness narratives on the African continent and the diaspora. Thank you for listening.